Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 15. Uh, what Kevin said is, is so absolutely true. There is this, I was actually talking with a group of pastors this week about the feeling of needing to make the resurrection unique and special. And uh, the ir- irony about that is, what more can you add to a dead man coming back to life? I mean, how can you improve on that? I mean, uh, is there anything else you can do Besides just say and remind people, Jesus was crucified, buried, and he rose again just like he said. No, there's nothing you can add to it. And so our hope is truly the power of the resurrection would be made known to us, not just through our ears, but also expressed in our life. And so in Mark chapter 15, I want to walk you through the last few uh, moments of Jesus' life and into his death and then ultimately into his resurrection. But you know, you can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. And you can't have a death unless you have a cause. And now, people die of all kinds of causes. Some of them are natural causes. Some of them are caused causes. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died for a reason that you and I may not fully Understand, and, and what I mean is, many of us would say Jesus died because he was crucified after being falsely accused by a handful of men. And so when he died, it was the men there who caused his death. But that's actually not exactly entirely true. Because we know that Jesus, being the Son of God, could have in any moment stopped the whole ordeal. At any moment, he could have said, you know what, it's enough, I'm done. I'm not walking one more step. The reason Jesus died was because it pleased the Father to have his Son carry all of the weight of the sin upon his shoulders. And because it was the only way for you and for me to be made right with God. It was the only option. Now somebody might say, well that's unfair of God. How could a loving Father send his Son to a cross? What kind of a God is that? You know, that's the way we look at it from a human perspective. I'll grant you that. I mean, after all, there is no, no greater love for another than to sacrifice your own family. But here's the thing that we have to remember. We're looking at this event from, human pers- from a human perspective, from the perspective of the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is death. That's our, that's our standard. I mean, after all, it, just, just consider this. If death were not an option, what would you do that you're not now doing? Man, I've got a huge list. Like, I would love to be in a plane crash. Now, I mean, just think, just walk with me for a minute. I've said this before, and you might think I'm crazy. How awesome would it be to, of course, I am kind of an adrenaline junkie. Uh, how awesome would it be to be just chilling in, a, in, in, in coach, right, in the middle seat? Right? Just, I guess this is more accurate. Chilling in coach in the middle of the seat. You just got your, your glass of Coke, or actually, you're not doing that anymore. So you, you just got your bag of six peanuts, right? And you're like, oh, these are the most amazing peanuts ever. And the pilot's like, look, guys, I'm sorry to tell you this, but enjoy your peanuts. We're about to crash. 
I mean, just the whole adrenaline of that thing would kind of be sort of cool if you knew you were going to walk away. Is anybody with me on this? No. No? Okay, I knew, I knew. So, so I, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but if, if you knew you weren't going to die, think of the story you would have. If you knew you weren't going to die, wouldn't it be awesome to take a motorcycle and jump over the Grand Canyon? Wouldn't that be cool? If you knew you weren't going to die, wouldn't it be super, super cool to take a skateboard and do one of those half pipes? Now, okay, and now it's back to human level. I mean, think about it. If death were not an option, why not? Right? So from our perspective, Jesus dying, that's the worst that could possibly happen. But now we can't take away from the reality of the pain of the, the death. But we have to look past the event and realize that the death of Jesus was only Friday. He knew Sunday was a coming. So if he knew Sunday was coming, obedience to the Father would have not been fearful. He would have had hope. He would have had confidence because he would have known that the best is yet to come. He also knew that obedience to his father was the most important thing that he could ever possibly do. So what actually caused Jesus' death was the love of the father for you and for me in that it's the only way that we could be redeemed. Now, why is that important to God? Because God is worthy of our praise. Dead men can't worship. It's impossible. He also understood that he didn't create us to be dead. He created us to live. And so, in the scripture, we have a resurrection But the resurrection is because there was a death, and the death is because there was a cause, because it was the only option. Interestingly enough, this wasn't something that God just thought of at the last moment. It's not not like he had other plans, and those plans just didn't work. No, if you look in the Scripture, starting in Genesis chapter 1, God had a plan. And it took, uh, it took all of that time of the Old Testament to get to this one section of history, the moment that split time in half, B.C. and A.D. It was an extraordinarily ordinary day. Extraordinarily ordinary. And what's interesting about it to me is when you look in the Gospel of Mark, is you see that there are so many people that are a part of this this divine intervention in human history. And they all had different reactions. They were all coming from a different place. And I want to look at this because I want to ask you the question, how are you viewing this day? Where do you fit in this story? If you were to have been there then... What would your thoughts, what would your words, what would your actions have been like? Walk with me, if you will. Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus 
away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. And he called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, again and again and again. They struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The first in the scene I want to look at are these soldiers. Now these soldiers were actually just having a good time. They were enjoying the process. Now, it might seem a little strange, but emergency personnel, those who work in the field of, of, of stress and, and uh, disaster and, and, and human suffering, get to a place where they laugh in the midst of, not necessarily always laugh, but they, they make jokes and they, and they try to be lighthearted about things that everybody else would be brokenhearted about it. Not because they don't care, but because it's basically a way of, to cope with all that they see. If you know a firefighter, a police officer, uh, an ER physician, you, you might wonder, how in the world do you do this every day? Well, part of what they do is they laugh. It's kind of sick to think about it, but it literally is survival. These soldiers would have been the same way. This was not a strange sight to them. They had seen countless men die because at their hands, that was their job, was to crucify them. But it wasn't just a crucifixion. It was the whole process of crucifixion. It began by a, bru a brutality of epic proportion upon the criminal's body. They didn't just take him, walk him out, and put him on a cross. It was an entire process of injuring him, and so much so that sometimes the criminal didn't even make it to the cross. Now, we watched the movie Passion of the Christ a bunch of years ago, and there was an uproar in the church, not this church, but in the church in general. And what was that uproar about? It's too graphic, which I kind of find interesting that we would think it was too graphic because it really would not have been graphic enough. You cannot put on screen the true brutality of what was going on here. These soldiers were masters at their craft. They knew how to crucify people. They knew how to cause just enough pain that it, even though it didn't kill them, it made them want to be dead, the criminal. And so they began by having some fun. And as the scripture says, they took a stick and they beat him in the head. Now, I just want you to let that filter through your mind a little bit. I want you to kind of feel and taste the story here. They took a stick and they cracked him upon the skull. And not just there, but it would have been all parts of his body. They took an, and, and made a crown of thorns to mock him. And I don't know if you've ever experienced these kinds of thorns, but if you've ever been to Israel and you've looked at their thorn bushes, they weren't little dinky, you know, the sand uh, things that you get in your foot and they're hurt. They're literally several inches long and they are hypodermic needle sharp that just a prick and you've got blood. They took this 
uh, this, this, this uh, uh, thorny branch and they wove it into a crown and they would have pressed it onto a skull. I don't want to be graphic too much to you, but I want you to understand that when they pressed it into a skull, they would have most likely put it down until it stopped because it was pressing into the skull. That is excruciating to even think about. They would have taken his arms and they would have tied him to a whipping post. And they would have laid him bare, nothing but perhaps a loincloth, maybe completely naked. And then they would have used this cat of nine tails, which essentially is a handle, and then nine leather straps that come from it. And inside those nine leather straps, they would have laced in chips of bone and pieces of metal so that when the soldier on one side would wrap the whip down onto him, it would come and grab flesh and pull it off, leaving the flesh completely bare. The same kind of feeling or the same kind of situation you have when you are riding your bicycle or you get in a motorcycle crash and you get what we call road rash. Basically, you slide along the pavement and it just peels the outer layer of your skin off. Except it wouldn't have just been superficial, it would have been a deep wound. And not just on his legs, but here, and here, and here, and the neck. And while enduring all of this suffering, they mocked him. They put a robe on him that was purple. Why? Because purple was the color of royalty. And they even got down on their knees and they said, Oh, we worship you, great and mighty king. Kind of laughing it off. They took this completely as a joke. They had no idea that this was a divine intervention God extending the only hope that they and we would have to be made right with God. And yet, they were just doing their jobs. A little later on in the story, we find that they gambled for his clothes at the foot of the cross. He had garments, and they each got one, and then they had one garment, the undergarment, that they didn't want to rip. They didn't want to tear it because there was value in that. And so they decided to cast lots. They decided to gamble for it at the foot of the cross. If you continue through the story, a certain man from Cyrene, verse 21, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Simon of Cyrene was just a pastor. He was an innocent stand, uh, uh, yeah, an inner, in, innocent bystander. Thank you. I said it right. You heard me wrong. No, excuse me. He was, just, he was just on his way in from the country. It was like he left that morning and said, hey, honey, I'm going to the store. I'm going to town. Be back in a while. There's no indication at all that he was there for the crucifixion. There's no indication at all that he was there for anything other than just he needed to get some supplies. But when he gets to the town, he gets caught up in this crowd. Why? Because what they would do with criminals is they would move them from the, the praetorium uh, uh, court and they would walk through the city down this particular street called the Via Della Rosa. It's mean, the meaning is the way of suffering. 
The whole idea is that they would march this criminal through the streets and out of the city gate onto the place called Golgotha, which is a place that was the called the place of the skull. And as they marched through the streets, everybody that was doing business would come out of their shops and they would see the condemned to die. But Jesus being so stripped of his energy, he had nothing left. I want you to imagine if you had undergone this kind of torture, how your mouth would be like full of cotton, how your tongue would be swollen, how when you, when you swallow, your throat just closes in on itself and sticks together as you gasp for air. And I want you to imagine that with no energy left, at some point on this road out of the city gate, he would have fallen to the ground and his cross would have landed down upon his back. Nothing left. And so a Roman soldier saw Simon the Cyrene passing by and said, Simon, actually he didn't say Simon, he wouldn't have known him. He said, you, you're going to carry his cross. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know what? Not me. I would have just told him, no, I'm here for other business. But you see, it didn't work that way. The Roman soldiers had the authority to command you to do something, and you had to do it. To say no would be an offense to the Roman Empire, and so you would then take the place of the criminal, and you didn't want that. So Simon was just an innocent bystander, got all caught up in the story. He carried the cross the rest of the way for Jesus while Jesus would have followed on behind. And again, I, I really want you to sense this and, and get this. Most likely, Jesus would have been barely able to even drag himself through the streets. I had a person this morning say, I don't understand why the death had to be so brutal. I don't understand why it had to be this way. Why couldn't it have been something more sanitary, something less painful. Why? The only answer I can think of is it's a visible picture of the offense that is owned by us against God. And it's the best way I can understand the true depth of the love of God for me and for you. I mean, it's... it's it, you can understand a person's love when they pay a little, but when they pay a lot, what do you say? You must really love me. It's actually kind of funny. The other day I was talking with somebody, and he found out I was a pastor. We had been friends for quite a while. And uh, you think that's funny, but I usually don't tell people I'm a pastor because I just want to be a normal human being, you know. I don't want to have that, that pastor title. Um, you know, I'm talking about out and, you know, normal friends. And, and he said, you know, I was always wondering about you because I was thinking to myself, nobody can love Jesus that much because you're always at church. I mean, he literally said those words. And, and, and they kind of struck me. I go, wow, nobody can love Jesus that much because they're always at church. And I thought to myself, you know, the way we act really does demonstrate the kind of love. It doesn't it? The way you act towards your family, your friends, all that. When God acted in this way, when Jesus acted in this way, there was a demonstration of love that was overwhelmingly clear. 
The Bible says it this way, but God demonstrated his love for us that even though we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Simon of Cyrene, innocent bystander. And then the scripture says, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. These are the soldiers. He did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, cast lots on who would get what. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And there was a written notice of the charge against him that read, the king of the Jews. The crucified, they also crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. Two different groups of people here. We have the criminals who are also being crucified, and we also have the crowd. They had different reactions. If you go into the Gospel of Luke, I believe chapter 23, what you'll find is that the criminals were opposite. The criminals, one on the right and one on the left, were being punished for their crime. They, were, they had been convicted of a capital offense. The one on the left was saying to Jesus, he was getting in on the action, hey, why don't you save yourself and save us while you're at it? There was some, there was some mocking going on. The one on the other side said, hey, don't you understand that we are only getting what our sins deserve? We're guilty. We deserve to be on this cross. He has done nothing wrong. What we have is this recognition of the sinfulness of the criminal. I wonder today, is that where you are? Have you recognized your own desperate need for these three days in your life? Have you recognized that without these three days, you have no hope? You say, well, Jeff, how can you say that? How do you know what the future brings? Because I know that one day you and I will die. I know that one day you and I not only will die, but we will stand before the God of all creation and we will be judged for our life. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews. It says, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that... The judgment. And so because I know that to be true, I wonder, do I recognize that my only hope, do you recognize that your only hope rests in these three days? Are you the criminal on the left or are you the criminal on the right? Are you the criminal who says, save yourself. And you're just acknowledging that there's a death but not acknowledging that the death is really a substitution for yourself? Or are you on the other side saying, I recognize that you should not have died. I should. If you go into the other Gospels, what you'll find is that this same, so, uh, same criminal who acknowledged that he was sinful, by the way, that's called repentance. That's agreeing with God of our own need. What he did a little later on in the story is he said, when you get to your kingdom, will you remember me? Greatest way to trust in Christ. I acknowledge I need you. Will you remember me? In other words, I'm a sinner. Will you save me? That's what he said. And so, are you the soldiers who are just laughing it off? Are you Simon who's just an innocent bystander? Are you uh, one of the criminals Who's mocking? Are you the other criminal 
who's saying to God, I believe you are the only hope? Or are you like the crowd? Notice that the crowd is there and the crowd is yelling and mocking as well. They're saying things like, save yourself. It's interesting to me when I look at this because what struck me about it was the fact that on this very day, there are people all over the world who have no idea that today is even Easter. Except that they saw a sign somewhere or except that they uh, uh, did, did something with a bunny, they have absolutely no idea that we are celebrating in this moment three days that changed the trajectory of the entire population of the human race from beginning all the way to end. How massive is that? And yet today people are laying on the beach, going to restaurants, having barbecues, all are good things. But what I'm saying is it's possible that they totally miss it this day, totally oblivious to the fact that these were the three most important days in human history, an exceptionally ordinary day. Then we have the religious leaders. Verse 31, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. If you look in the Gospel of Luke, what you'll find is that they were angry. They sneered, is one of the words used in Scripture. They sneered, they mocked, they were angry at what was going on. You know, I can actually identify with this. There are times when we want to be angry with God, aren't there? I was having a conversation with somebody not too long ago, and I recognized that, that in that conversation, well, what I was dealing with was a person who was angry at God for allowing something to happen. And from a human perspective, there's somewhat of a human justification with, of that, isn't it? God, if you love me, how could you let this happen? God, if you were a good God, how could you allow this to happen? God, if you were truly as powerful as you are, how come this was not stopped by you? I get that. I really get that. Because all of us in this room have dealt with things that are horrible, horrible things. And if your things have not been horrible enough, just wait. You'll get there. That's encouraging, right? What I'm saying is life is hard. Amen? And what I'm saying is there are things in life that we don't understand, and so we, we have to blame somebody. And who's the obvious person to blame? Well, let's blame God. I mean, if God is all-powerful, then why didn't he use his power to fix it? And I can't explain all of the details of why. I can only say that in the rest of Scripture, in all of Scripture, I see God reveal himself as good, I see God reveal himself as kind. I see God reveal himself as just. I see God reveal himself as a father and as a friend. And so when I can't explain the situation, I have to trust in the fact that the character of God doesn't line up with what I think about God in the situation. You say, well, that's just an easy out. No, it's... it's it's just the truth. There are some things that can't be explained, and if we really wanted to get into it, what we would have to say is this. 
Yes, God could stop every evil thing from happening, but he literally would have to stop every evil thing from happening if he was going to be a fair God, wouldn't he? Because wouldn't that be the, the, the accusation against him? God, why didn't you stop this bad thing from happening in my life? And, okay, if God did that, well, then what about that thing? And what about that thing? And what about that thing? Do you make, does that make sense? God would literally, to, if, if we're going to call in his fairness into question, he would have to stop every single bad thing that there ever was from the beginning of all time for him to be truly fair, right? You know what the problem with that is? He created things that way. We're the ones that messed it up. When I say we, obviously it was Adam and Eve who committed the first sin, but if we'd have been there, we'd have done the same thing, right? What happens is God's plan is always perfect, and because of sin, we insert our own way and we rebel and we reject and things happen and the natural consequences of those things are not part of God's perfect plan but they are part of what it means to be human living in a fallen broken world. Does that make sense? And so because of all of that here's what God says. I'm not going to fix in the, in the moment every bad thing that ever happens. But what I am going to do is I'm going to redeem every bad thing that happens. And I'm going to redeem it for my own glory and for our relationship. Here's what I can tell you without fail. Every person that I can recall ever talking to, that I can recall ever talking, every person that I've talked to, as I can recall, when they're talking about the struggles of life and the goodness of God, what they've realized is that after all of the smoke is cleared, they have been thankful that God was God in the midst of that. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm asking that because this is one of those topics that's easily misunderstood. The, the, the religious leaders were angry. They were angry because Jesus was messing up their system. But you and I might be angry for different reasons. And what I want to say to you is, if that's you today, trust him. Because there was a love that was displayed in those three days that is evidence of what and who God is. He was a God who sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There was also another crowd there. Well, actually, a bunch of crowd. But there was another crowd I want to talk about. And it, was the, it was the women and the disciples. Most of them stayed back at a distance. That's what Luke tells us. But some of the women were up a little bit closer. And the Bible says in Luke that they were mourning and they were heartbroken. They didn't understand what was going on. They just knew that, that this Jesus who they loved so dearly was being crucified on a cross. But see, what they, didn't recognize, what they didn't remember was what Jesus said. They were still looking at it through human eyes. They didn't remember that Jesus said, I am going to die. I am going to be buried. But don't fear. After Friday, Saturday, and after Sunday, excuse me, after Saturday, we get a Sunday. Not ice cream. A Sunday. Although, kind of nice. 
We get the resurrected Christ. And here's where I want to close. This story is the pivotal, pivotal moment in history. Without question, without these three days, you and I are hopeless. You and I are dead in our sin. Some people say, you know, or some people think, well, I'm not really going to go through Christ. I'm just going to let my good and my, my bad balance each other out. Matter of fact, if you ask most people, do you know for sure you die if you go to heaven? Most people would answer, well, I, I, I hope so. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't think I've been as bad as I've been good. And so we have this idea that, we, that God has this giant scale and he piles all of our bad stuff on one side and all of our good stuff on the other side. And we're, we're hoping that our good will just tip the scale in our, our favor. But the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. That's pretty exclusive, not even one. The Bible says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So when we stand before God, we're like, don't I look good? It's almost like God shows us in the mirror. Uh, no, you don't look good at all. And so when people say, I hope my good outweighs my bad, our good will never outweigh our bad. In fact, because we're so desperate, we stand before God and we should receive the true judgment of our sin. And it, God says, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. Not of works. Why? So that none of us can boast. It's by grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's God's unmerited favor to you and to me. We're saved. That means we're rescued. We're pulled out of the pit. We are taken from the slum and we are put into the mansion, if you'll think of it that way. By grace, we're saved through faith. Faith is believing in what we don't see. But the root of our faith is always the Word of God. Our faith is because Jesus said it. And we're saying, I'm believing the Word, and that Word is what is going to enter, bring me into a relationship with God. I want you to think of it this way. Those three days were necessary, not only for you and for me after the fact, but they were necessary for everybody from the cross all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why? Because the Bible tells us that all of those Old Testament sacrifices were not enough to forgive sin. You say, well, why'd they do them? Because those sacrifices were an act of obedience, a demonstration of faith in the promised Messiah to come. So in the Old Testament, when they made sacrifices, they were testifying, I believe God is making a way. The way just hadn't, hadn't been shown yet. All the way to these three days, you come to this place where, okay, now God is making the way. Here's how we know that this was the final way. Ready? In the scripture, in Luke, what we find is in the moment where Jesus died, he said a few different words. He said, it is finished. What's finished? The work of God in redeeming mankind is finished. What also did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They are treating this extraordinary day as ordinary. Forgive them. There's an ignorance there. What else did Jesus say? Father, into my hands I commit your spirit, my spirit. 
And then the Bible says that he breathed his last. That's really important, though, because what it really, really says, if you go to the original language of the text, is that he gave up his ghost. Jesus willingly breathed his last, showing that no man had power over his life. He himself willingly gave it. And the moment that he died, the Bible tells us that there was an earthquake that people felt. The temple rocked in its place. And inside the temple was the temple veil. I wouldn't have time to get into it now, but the temple veil was this ginormously thick cloth that was, it was, it was, it was uh, separating what was called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And so that Holy of Holies was a place that only could be entered into by the high priest one time a year. He had to go through the veil after purifying himself through uh, ceremonial cleansing. They even tied a bell onto his robe and a rope around his leg because the high priest, if he was not clean before God, when he went into the Holy of Holies, God would strike him dead in the moment. And they basically outside of the veil would hear that there's no sound and they would drag him out. Pretty graphic, isn't it? What, that's a picture of the holiness of God and how, he re, it, it, how, how only perfection can be in his presence. And here's what happened. The moment Jesus died, the scripture records that the veil was ripped completely in two from the top to the bottom. Why was it ripped from the top to the bottom and not the bottom from the top? Because it was God himself who ripped the veil. He said, it is finished. No more is there now a separation between you and me. All that needs to be done for us to be made right, for you to not be held liable for your sin, everything in this moment has been done. It is finished. Paid in full. Paid in full. You ever had a really big bill? Been paying it off and paying it off? Yeah, you're smiling on that one, aren't you? And you ever gone back one time and you made the last payment and they take that big old rubber stamp? You're like, like echoes through the chambers of the, right? You're like, do it again, do it again. Paid in full, paid in full. That's your proof that you owe nothing. Those three days... God stamped paid in full for your sin and for mine. Now that's the death. Three days later, the women went to the tomb. They brought spices because that's what you do with dead people. In those days, they didn't embalm you. They basically put you in a tomb and you'd have to go every couple of days and you'd have to put the spices to keep the stench down. The women went there and there were two angels. They said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Say, what? That's in the Hebrew. Actually, it's in the Greek. Say, what? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just like he told you. So, folks, we stand here today with the hope of the resurrected Christ.
Your story does not end in death. You hear what I'm telling you? Your body is going to die, but the Bible says that though the body may die, even though he dies, yet will he live. If death is not an option, spiritual death, if, if you don't have to fear death, what is there that you cannot do? What kind of fear can you possibly have if death no longer has any hold on you? Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is gone. Why? Because the moment Jesus busted out of that grave, he was declaring that no one can hold his body down. He was God, the Word made flesh. So this morning, I want to remind you that your story is not finished. There is hope. But you see, you, you find yourself in the midst of the story, right? Right now, we're in the midst of these three days. Where are your thoughts? Where, where are your feelings right now? Who will you be? Oh, by the way, one of the centurions that was at the cross, after the earth went dark, after the, the earth shook, he said these words, Surely this man was a righteous man. In other words, surely this man is the Son of God. Amen. You notice you, you move from disbelief to belief, and it's that transition from disbelief to belief that is life-changing. When that happens in your life, you can never be the same. This morning we heard the story of a man whose father was abusive, whose father was not present, whose father was so difficult to be around that as soon as possible this young man left the house to join the army just to get away. You know it's desperate when you just want to leave at a young age to go join the army. That didn't come out the way I meant it to come out, by the way. But I think you get my picture. This morning, we heard of a, of a lady whose life from 16 on for some 20 years was addicted to, to drugs. The drugs had a hold on her. And the condemnation and the guilt was overwhelming. And yet Jesus rescued her out of that. Yet for this man, he was rescued out and shown that we have a father who's not just God, but Abba, Daddy, Father. We heard the story of a woman who recognized that life is not just breathing, it's vigor. It's life abundantly. And through the pain of her life, she recognized that there was more because of the crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected Christ. This morning we heard the word of a woman who got the worst news a woman could possibly get. You have breast cancer. And all of that fear and all that comes with those words have been overshadowed by a remarkable God-given peace. She said, I'm told I'm a warrior, but the truth is I'm a little girl. 
And the, the weaker I am, the stronger he is through me. I'm watching a transformation of this person right before my very eyes, and it's marvelously beautiful. This morning we heard from a young, young guy, 17 years old, say, had a good life, had a good family, I've never done anything really bad, I, I might have messed up once or twice, but, but I still need Jesus. That's the story that God is building in you. One of those stories... The resurrected Christ. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. Simply say to him, God, I recognize, like the thief on the cross, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I deserve death and hell. But God, I recognize that the grace that comes through Jesus Christ is offered to me. So I receive that in Jesus' name. This morning, if, as Leanne said this, Leanna said this morning, if your life is just breathing and you're not living with vigor, I want to invite you to ask God to change that. This morning, if your marriage is broken, I want to invite you to lay that at the foot of the cross. This morning, if you're struggling with an addiction or if you're struggling with a, a relationship, I want you to, to lay those at the foot of the cross. And I want you to move from the cross to the empty tomb. Father in heaven, I pray for your people, everybody who's listening, everybody who's watching. Father, I pray that you would demonstrate your own power in our life. Father, that the gospel would be more than just a story, that these three days would be transformational in our lives. Father, I pray that you would empower us with hope and with courage. When death and the grave have no power and no sting, we are free. We are free indeed. God, I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at FBC Gulf Breeze.